Welcome back to the Monsters and Mixers podcast. We are your hosts. I am Emma. And I am Amy. Um, This is round two of attempting to record this, so let's hope we can get it through it without any hiccups. Yeah, yesterday was a rough one. Um, We had several things we were going to have to go back and edit (laughs) out, and then for some unknown reason, I got a FaceTime call that came through on my iPad, and it deleted 45 minutes almost of (laughs) recording. So, yeah, that was fun. Yeah. So. But we're back, and <laughs> we're just, yeah. Yeah, so uh, this is the first true crime episode of season three. So, um, like we said in the episode that you are not going to hear, uh, we're going to try to be more um, consistent, but no promises. We're really busy. Yeah, but we things are vastly different schedules, and yeah. yeah. As we talked about before, like, this move has really altered our realities um and things are a lot more complex than they were when we were living in the midwest in a good way because Mm -hmm. there's a lot more to do but emma was job hunting and kept landing jobs but they weren't sticking so i hated all of them (laughs) so we um she's been working through that and there's been a lot of downtime and training and things that she's had to do because of that and really cut down into the research portion of the podcast, which mm-hmm. if you are a longtime listener, thank you. And you know that we try to be very thorough in our research. So we don't want to, for the sake of putting out episodes every week, give you a shit episode. We want to make sure that we're still mm-hmm. staying true to our vision and what we like to do. And so if you only get one once every couple of weeks, it's because we love you and we want you to have good content not just content. Yeah. Especially with my side, like on the true crime side, I don't want to just like hurriedly, sounds weird. Is that how you hurriedly. Say hurriedly, um, research something and miss a lot and just like give you a half-assed episode when I know that I could do a lot better yeah. if I just took the time I needed to produce something good. Um, so yeah, big change. I mean, back in the Midwest, I was bartending two days a week. I'm working five to six now. Yeah. So it's just a little bit of a difference. Um, but we are going to do our best yeah. to get back in a regular routine. <laughs> yeah. Again. Might not be like every Sunday, like it used to be, or like every week, but at least every week and a half, we're going to yeah. attempt and do our best. I'm going to start stockpiling because yeah. I'm in the land of creepy shit now. <laughs> so there's lots to do. And we did have some people say that they really liked when we did the lives so we're going to try and see if there are some places down here we can go and do some live um, recordings. Although it was kind of iffy. It was hard to get really good sound quality on that one. But we've learned some things since then. And I really like doing the Facebook Live specifically where we can go and show you like, hey, here's what we're going to be talking about or here's what we talked about. And there's lots of the places that we have covered already mm-hmm. down here. So we're going to try and mix it up and give you different things to look look at listen to view yeah just consume and we're trying to get up the momentum to do a little bit of youtube but as it is working right now we both kind of look like a bag of dicks while we're recording literally (laughs) we're we're not my work uniform we're not youtube ready but we will get there yeah i smell like stale coffee beans and my hair looks like i got electrocuted so not photo uh video ready at all but, okay, enough of that. We are going to get into Emma's episode. Um, I am going to be primarily kind of just letting her talk and 
I will ask questions and things periodically, but I'm learning a lot of this information firsthand as well. And I do not want to break up the flow of her telling you things by me, me asking a lot of um, inconsequential, inconsequential questions. Mm -hmm. So, But it, if there is something that you want to talk about further or you have a question, I'll do my best to answer it. We can All discuss. Right. Okay. Um, so in the early morning hours of November 13th, 2022, four University of Idaho students were brutally murdered in their shared off-campus home in Moscow, Idaho. The young and bright lives of Madison Mogan, Zana Kernodal, Ethan Chapin, and Kaylee Gonzalez were taken far too soon, and even with the suspect in custody, the motive is still currently unknown. Um, I'm going to do a detailed timeline of everything that we have been told up to this point. As many details have been muddled with the social media frenzy surrounding this case, um, if you were following this case, um, if you're listening, I'm assuming that you are a true crime fan, so you probably did kind of have your eyes glued to the TV for at least a month like ours were. Um, we were watching like every press conference, every little like News Nation mini documentary they were doing on everything. Um, but as kind of like we see with cases when they get this big, like we saw with Gabby Petito, the internet took it and ran with it. And there are a lot of mistruths out there. There are a lot of things that are just inflated for the sake of being inflated. People love to talk and sensationalize um, and, sensationalize and gossip. Um, that's not what we do here. I'm sure if you're listening, you know that. So what you're going to hear from us is not, I'm not going to be talking about Papa Roger, the <laughs> Facebook group stuff. I'm not going to be discussing that. We're going to give you facts and that's it. Um, so I'm first, I'm going to do my best to tell you who these individuals were, um, or are as human beings, as I feel they may have been lost in a lot of that dialogue before this horrific crime was committed. They were your everyday 20 somethings with futures, friends, family, and personalities. And they matter more than anyone in this story. Um, Kaylee Gonzalez was a 21 year old senior from Rathdrum, Idaho. Uh, she was majoring in general studies at the University of Idaho in the College of Letters, Arts, and Social Sciences. She was a member of the Alpha Phi sorority, and as you will notice, she was very involved in the school's Greek life like the rest of her roommates and friends. She had a golden doodle puppy named Murphy that she shared with her ex-boyfriend that she loved more than anything, and she can be seen doing silly little dances with him on TikTok. She had recently purchased a 2016 Range Rover that she was over the moon about and had planned a trip to Europe for the following year to celebrate her graduation. She was actually set to move to Texas. Um, at the time of these uh, murders, she had already graduated. She had graduated early and she had a job at an IT firm in Texas lined up and she could not be more excited for the next year full of new beginnings. At the time of the murders, Kaylee had actually already moved out of the home at 1122 King Road, and she was going back to Moscow to show her new car to her best friend and former roommate, uh, Maddie Mogan, and go to a nearby party with her over the weekend. She had everything going for her, absolutely everything, her older sister, Olivia, said. She had her job lined up. She had worked really hard for it. Olivia described her sister as constantly chasing adventure and living her life to the fullest. She said that there wasn't much people could tell Kaylee that she couldn't do. She said if her younger sister wanted to do something, she was going to do it. Um, and something sweet that I didn't write down, but I do think is worth mentioning. Um, during most of the interviews with Olivia, she was very pregnant. Um, and she just had her baby, I think, in the past month and named her Kaylee. Mm -hmm. So that's really sweet. Very sweet. 
Um, Kaylee was, is, and always will be our defender and protector, her family said in a written statement following her death. She is tough and fair, the ultimate middle child. She did absolutely everything she set her mind to. She didn't hold back on love, fights, or life. Kaylee was the ultimate go-getter and constantly wanted an adventure. Madison Mogan was a 21-year-old senior from Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. Excuse me. She was majoring in marketing and was a member of the Pi Beta Phi sorority. At the time, she was working at a nearby restaurant called The Mad Greek with her friend and roommate, Zana Cronodal. Maddie was putting her degree to work and was actually using her marketing skills to run a social media campaign for the restaurant, which is awesome. Yeah. I don't think I ever really got to, while I was studying things, like do something at another job that correlated to my studies. She loved the color pink and she was planning to move to Boise after graduating in the spring. Um, as I stated earlier, Maddie and Kaylee were childhood best friends. Um, they were said to be about as close as two friends could possibly be and they were inseparable. So much so that they went to middle school together. They went to the same high school together. They went to like some, I think it was kind of like a private art school kind of thing where you kind of had to apply to get into a high school. And um, I don't know if it was Kaylee or Maddie who was going first, but the other one like begged their parents and did like a PowerPoint of like why I should be allowed oh, to go to this cute. school um, just because the other one was going. Um, Besties for the rest. Yeah. And so here's a quote that I found from their high school English teacher that I feel exemplifies their relationship perfectly. Maddie and Kaylee, Kaylee and Maddie, they went together, they belonged together. They were sisters, she was one of ours, Kaylee's mother said at the memorial service. Um, Maddie's father said the pair had been inseparable since the sixth grade. They were true sisters and our families grew bigger and better from that, said Ben Mogan. Uh, you know how it is when mm -hmm. one of your kids has a friend that is constantly there doing everything together. It's like you have an extra kid. Very much so. Yeah, you're eating dinners with them, you know, taking them to do stuff. And you get so used to that person being part of your family that it's weird when they're gone. Absolutely. Uh, Maddie Mogan's boyfriend, Jake, also spoke at the memorial and said that the couple had been together for two years. Maddie was my best friend. She was the first person I talked to every morning and the last person I talked to before bed, he said. Zana Cronodal was a 20-year-old marketing major. She was originally from Avondale, Arizona, but she had moved to Post Falls, Idaho. She was a junior at the University of Idaho, majoring in marketing at the College of Business and Economics. Um, she was also a member of the Pi Beta Phi sorority, and she loved her dog, Shoeshine, which uh, we talked about it the first time we recorded this. this is, that's the cutest name for a dog I've ever heard really in my life. Um, she loved electronic dance music, and she loved going on family trips with her dad and her sister. Before going to the University of Idaho, Zanna attended Post Falls High School. Um, she was said to be the epitome of an athlete. She played volleyball, she played soccer, and she ran track until she graduated. Um, I'm not sure if those seasons typically happen at the same time for some of those sports. It depends on the school. A lot of schools try to to mix it up, and if there's a boys and a girls team, they usually have alternating um, seasons, so it's mm -hmm. possible. I know that several of the schools I've worked at before, our volleyball and soccer were opposite. Typically, though, soccer and track are going to be at the same time. Mm -hmm. I feel like the people that I knew who ran track in high school, that was like a year-long commitment. Mm -hmm. Like... Even when they weren't running for like competitions, they were still practicing. I mean, it's so, possible you could work them. Yeah, work them out if your both of your coaches are understanding. Mm -hmm. uh, 
all just to say that she was very busy mm-hmm. and was doing a lot. Um, for her graduation in 2020, she decorated her cap with flowers and butterfly cutouts and the words for the lives that I will change. Like I said, Zena had also worked as a server at the Mad Greek restaurant in Moscow for several, several years, along with Maddie. You rarely get to meet someone like Zena, Jasmine Kernodal, her sister, said in a statement. She was so positive, funny, and was loved by everyone who met her. She was so lighthearted and always lifted up a room. She made me such a proud big sister, and I wish I could have had more time with her. She had so much life left to live. Um, among the four victims was Zana's boyfriend, Ethan Chapin. Ethan Chapin was 20 years old. Um, he was a freshman majoring in sports, recreation, and tourism management. And he was from Conway, Washington, where he attended Mount Vernon High School and played basketball and tennis. Um, he was a member of the Sigma Chi fraternity at the University of Idaho. Ethan was a triplet, um, and his siblings, Maisie and Hunter, actually enrolled alongside him in the University of Idaho uh, last August. He loved the NFL and country music. Since attending the University of Idaho, Ethan lived his best life, according to his obituary. He loved the social life, intramurals, and just tolerated the academics. Most college kids do. (laughs) Right. But he also continued to play sports. Tyler Amaya, uh, Chapin's former coach, said that he has fond memories of Ethan. They met when he was just a boy, and he watched him grow into the young man he was before the tragedy. He lit up many of my dark days, days when maybe things weren't rolling for me. Ethan comes in the gym, and all of a sudden, everything is meaningful again, Amaya said. That's sad. Yeah. So just from the things that people have said, they all sound like amazing people who just their existence just made the world a better place to be in. Yeah. And that quote that she put on her cap is at the time, I'm sure meant to signify something so different than it actually does Mm -hmm. because in a very fucked up way, they are touching a lot of people. See, this is why I can't do these. I'm starting to tear up because this is so freaking sad and these poor kids. Yeah. Um, so Ethan and Zana were actually really good friends before they officially started dating. Um, and by last summer, Zana was spending the entire time with his family. In late November, friends planted tulips around the Skagit Valley to honor Ethan. Uh, Reese Gardner and Andrew Miller met him when they worked together in the Valley's tulip fields, um, which is still, to me, like the coolest job ever, like working in tulip fields and just planting tulips. It would be so picturesque yeah, and beautiful and peaceful. every day. Yeah, it's just, I'm sure it was pretty laborious and long days and probably hot and you're outside, but... It just sounds so nice. I don't know. I don't really feel the heat when I'm outside taking care of plants. Mm-hmm. I just, I really like to garden and plant. And so I think I should get a job like this. Yeah. It also just kind of speaks to like who he is as a person. Um, working in a tulip field isn't really something that you would expect a 20 year old boy to want to do. Mm-mm. It's just like such a, which might be stereotypical of me, but like I know my brother who is 20 and I think the last thing that he would want to do would be, like, plant flowers all day. Yeah. <laughs> or touch dirt. Or, or touch outside. dirt or, like, do anything like that. I so mean, it's he does just like kind to of... be outside, but it's more of a rough and tumble sports kind of thing. Right. It would be nurturing nature. Yeah. I do think it's just kind of telling of his personality that that's something that he wanted to do um, as a job. Um, he was one of the few people that there was nothing bad about him. He was 100% pure. He was honest and just a great person, said Reese. Miller was Chapin's boss on the farm. Tulips are a big part of what it means to grow up in the Skagit Valley and enjoy Skagit Valley, but our youth is our number one export, said Miller. 
We send them all over the world. I think that this is a way we can honor that, honor that every spring and remember Ethan. He made everyone's lives a little bit better, no matter what. And I just think something like that shouldn't be forgotten, said Reese. In the spring, the tulips will bloom yellow and white to symbolize joy and peace. And the gardens are being called Ethan's smile because of the positivity that he radiated. Um, they will serve as a living, loving reminder of a life taken away before it could fully bloom. <sighs> just such a, obviously very sad, but a great way to memorialize a life. Yeah. And once something, you, thankfully, knock on wood, I've never had to experience such immense, immense tragedy, but I'm sure that the feeling of needing to do something mm -hmm. is so overwhelming and to honor them in mm -hmm. some way. So I can see wanting to figure out, okay, what is something that is the embodiment of their spirit yeah. and trying to carry that on. We see that uh, really often with families who like lose loved ones to um, either like violent crime or like missing persons cases where within like months of these things, they're starting foundations, they're starting memorials, like in the names of the people that they lost. I do think it's kind of like that. I mean, even we've experienced it. Like I know when like we experience loss, like my first thing is like immediately like, what do you, what do the, what do people want to eat for dinner? Like what, right. what can I do? Mm -hmm. Like what, like just something yeah. that like keeps you busy. So you're not just like sitting there. It's definitely, festering. A, it's definitely a coping mechanism. Absolutely. Yeah. Why do you think like funeral meals are such a big thing or like the meal trains, like mm -hmm. the second, like someone passes, everybody wants to bring you dinner, even though like probably the last thing you want to do is eat, but it's yeah. just like human reaction to be like, I have to do something. So I'm going to bring them like a lasagna they can pop in the oven. Yeah, that was like when your grandpa passed. That was the last thing I wanted to do was eat. Mm -hmm. I was like, I feel. I'm, I'm not yeah, people were like, you guys want KFC, and I was like, well, no, <laughs> I don't think so. But I really appreciate the gesture. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe in like three months. I'm just gonna drink this wine and <laughs> right. sit in my world. Um. So, in addition to the three girls that I just discussed, there were two additional University of Idaho students living in the home on King Road, who at this time I will not name. Um, something that kept happening the first time we recorded this is I tried my very best to redact the names, but the fact that I know the names, um, I'm trying to do like initials like they were in the affidavit. The fact that I know what their names are, it's really hard for me. Like when I'm just off the cusp to not just say them. So I'm going to make a conscious effort today to not say them. She will not say them because <laughs> I'm not editing it out. I know. Yeah. It was actually a blessing that the episode got <laughs> demolished twice. by FaceTime because there was no way I was going to find those <laughs> damn words and take them out. It happened twice and every time I would gasp and cover my mouth and like freeze. Yeah. I'm going to try really hard to not. And we know that you probably know the names, but the fact that they were redacted is for done for a reason mm -hmm. and to respect their privacy and not put them out there. It is... Yeah definitely something we're not going to do it'd be one thing if these girls like after this happened we're doing press conferences and interviews and we're putting themselves out there they're not yeah. um they're not so no. we're not gonna do that to them and and a lot of ways they are victims also Absolutely. and they need to be protected mm -hmm. um so just a little bit about moscow idaho it is a very small town in idaho with a population of a little over twenty-five thousand. Um, it is and has long been considered one of the best towns to live in in Idaho, which, sorry to my Idahoans, but I don't know what competition you have besides like Boise. Hey, I was going to 
see, I think there's supposed to be some pretty nice places in know. Idaho. I don't know if you could pay me enough to live in Idaho, but... I mean, it's a very small town. Very nature-y. Midwest, but that's... Cold. That appeals to a cold. lot of people. You would hate it. Oh, yeah. So cold. Um, but it is the quintessential college town with coffee shops, restaurants, and bars. And livability.com actually ranked it as one of the best college towns in America, period. The university is fully ingrained in the community, so much so that most local business owners and residents are University of Idaho alumni. Um, so it's kind of like one of those places where if you're going to the University of Idaho, you probably grew up in a surrounding community in Idaho. It's not like a like an Arizona state, like an ASU or like a UCLA where you get people coming from everywhere to go to that place. It's mainly people who grew up either in Moscow themselves, their family went to University of Idaho, or they grew up two hours away. Yeah. Um, and it really does, it's a testament to the town that people went to school there and they stayed and they wanted to start businesses there. And that like, if you go into a coffee shop, it's going to be owned by someone who went to your school. That doesn't happen most places. Which I think is probably what makes all of this so much more shocking mm -hmm. is that you could walk for a block and know 99% of the people you were passing, if right. not more. Yeah. And I grew up in a very small town. You, yours was bigger, but... Still I mean, small enough. I graduated with 115 people. Mm -hmm. And I probably still to this day could name almost all of them. And yeah. it's been way longer than I cared to admit yeah. since I graduated. But you just get that small town feel. Mm -hmm. And even though it was a little larger than, I mean, 25,000 is not huge. No, it's pretty small. I mean, that's smaller than where we lived. And and I guess that even probably includes the kids on campus, maybe? Uh, probably not. I don't not. know if they're included. Well, if they're locals, If they're would. local, it would. Yeah, but I don't know. I'm not sure if that would factor in at all. Either way, it's a very, very tight-knit small community. Absolutely. Um, Moscow regularly ranks in the top 25 safest cities in Idaho, and the violent crime rate is 82% lower there than the national average, which is in impressive yes. and hard to do. As cliche as it sounds, it truly is or was one of those places where people don't lock their doors. You go to bed with your front door unlocked and it just stays that way. You don't lock your car doors when you leave your car. You had no reason to. Um, there's a sense of communal security amongst everyone who resides in Moscow and that comfort was greatly shaken if not completely destroyed in the early morning hours of November 13th, 2022. Um, we're going to take our first break here before we dive into the timeline of the events that happened um, in the early morning hours of November 13th, and we will be right back. Uh, this is the detailed timeline as we know it today. All of the details that I'm going to be sharing have been verified by police, and like I said earlier... We will not be participating in sensationalized speculation. Um, if some of this information is new to you, I do suggest that you take the time to read the affidavit. I'm not going to uh, detail everything that was listed in the affidavit because it is, I don't remember the exact page number, but it's around or over 20 pages long and it is very detailed. Um, but I did take out what I think is most important. Um, if you want to read all of it and you are... <coughs> invested in this case given the fact that the trial is coming up and will be starting in june i do recommend that if you want to follow that you do read it because it's important so 
Uh, like I said, facts are vital and important to obtaining justice in this case. So that is all that I will be giving you guys. Excuse me. Oh my God. I'm losing my voice. <laughs> you <God. laughs> Um, So at 8.57 p.m. on Saturday, November 12th, Kaylee posted a series of pictures on Instagram with her roommates captioned, one lucky girl to be surrounded by these people every day. That night, Kaylee and Maddie hung out together at the Corner Club, uh, which is a downtown bar at 202 Main Street, while Ethan and Zanna attended a party at the Sigma Chi House on campus together. The two other surviving roommates also went out to hang with their respective friend groups, um, it was the weekend before Thanksgiving break, and it's a time to be together and celebrate. Um, Kaylee came back to campus for this. So as we all know, when you're in college or even just a young adult, Thanksgiving and the week before when you get to like see all your friends, I mean, you're saying goodbye to your campus friends to go home to your at-home friends. It's a fun time. There's a lot of partying to be had. Yeah, so that's of, what they were doing. A lot of drinking. Um, I do want to mention that before Ethan and Zana attended the party at the Sigma Chi house, it is confirmed that Ethan went to what I believe is a sorority ball with his uh, triplet sister. Do you call them twin sisters when you're triplets? No, triplet. Uh, triplet sister. Um, he was her date, which is very sweet. Mm -hmm. So that happened before. And then him and Zana went to a frat party on campus. Um, Maddie and Kaylee can be seen on Corner Club video footage between 10 p.m. and 1.30 in the morning. So it is confirmed that that is where they were. At about 1.40 a.m., Kaylee and Maddie are then seen on video at Grub Truck, which was a local food vendor uh, slash food truck kind of thing. It was a staple in the University of Idaho students' weekend escapades. Um, they had, like, carbonara and, like, sandwiches, like, all the late-night munchies that you would want. Genius business model. Um, late night food and drunk college students is a perfect combination. So that was typically their stop on weekends before they headed home. The grub truck live streams from their food truck on Twitch, um, which is available for public viewing on their website. So that is how we know that they were there. The two of them used a private individual to get a ride home. It wasn't a ride service or an Uber or anything. They just called a friend and they took them home. Um, and they were said to be back home by around 1:45 in the morning. A man seen in surveillance video at the grub truck and the person who drove them home were cleared and were not suspects. Um, despite internet sleuths swearing up and down that both individuals had to somehow be involved. These people are cleared. They are not suspects in the case. Leave they, them alone. They never were suspects. <laughs> right. Leave them alone. Um, Etha, Etha, Ethan and Zana uh, also were said to have gotten home around the same time, 1.45 a.m., according to the police report. Um, although Ethan did not live at the home, it is assumed that he was planning on spending the night over there, which was a regular occurrence and nothing out of the ordinary for the two. The surviving roommates referred to as DM and BF in the official documents both made statements during interviews that indicated that the occupants of the King Road residence were home by 2, 2 a.m. at the latest and asleep or at least in their respective rooms by 4 a.m. This is with the exception of Xana who received a DoorDash order at approximately four in the morning. And the DoorDash driver is also not a suspect in this case. Um, and would be very easy to track down as they have a record of who it was. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, now, before I continue, the affidavit being released really blew this entire case open. If some of this is new information to you, uh, because you did not read the affidavit, that is why. Prior to its release, it was believed that all four of the victims were murdered in their sleep, 
as it was suspected that they were all home a lot earlier than they actually were. Um, we didn't exactly know like when the murders were committed, um, but those things have been cleared up for us. We do know that. Um, the exact details of that night did not become clear until this document document was made public, which happened about two months after this case happened. Yeah, there was a lot of murky misinformation, mm -hmm. no information, bad information floating around for a long time. Yeah, which is fully understandable from uh, the police perspective because in, we now know, I mean, at the beginning, people were really pissed off because they thought that the police weren't um, taking this seriously or working as quickly as they should have been. Um, but the affidavit lets us know that within 10 days of these crimes being committed, they were actively trailing a suspect. Yeah. Um, the suspect that is in, currently in police custody. When, and a lot of times they don't, the police don't give out information because they don't want someone to know that they're right. on to them because then they can flee. And, mm -hmm. Or if they're continuing to be dangerous, then it becomes an issue for other people. Well, yeah. And also, why would you... Um, want to tell the public because the person who did this is included in the public why would you want to lay all your cards on the table and mm -hmm. tell them everything that you know and have against them i mean th that time the person who committed these crimes probably didn't know what they had against them didn't know that they had all of the stuff that they did have so they're going to keep it close to their chest as you should when you want to obtain not only an arrest but a conviction and it also makes it very hard in court if you've said too much to get a jury that's not tainted. Absolutely. Yeah. Especially in such a small community like mm -hmm. this one. Um, so DM stated that she originally went to sleep in her bedroom on the southeast side of the second floor. Um, kind of to just go back to that, before this affidavit was released, um, people were kind of under the impression that the two surviving roommates' bedrooms were on the basement floor. Um, Ethan and Zanna's bedrooms were on the second floor and Kaylee and Maddie's were on the third. The affidavit does indeed clear up the fact that DM's bedroom was on the second floor, not in the basement like we thought, or I guess just assumed because I don't know why we... I think I think when people hear upstairs and downstairs, our brains automatically go mm -hmm. to basement instead of thinking of this was a tri-floor house, right? Yeah. Yeah. So it, mm -hmm. it I, I automatically like... When somebody says upstairs, downstairs, I think of like a typical house with a basement. Right. And not something with multi-levels. Yeah, kind of like our old house. But instead, like the layout of this house is like you walk through the front door, you're on the second floor. There's a staircase that takes you up to the third floor and a staircase that takes you down to the first floor or the quote basement. Yeah. Um, and there were open bedrooms, so it's not like every bedroom in the house was occupied. They kind of just went where they wanted to go. Um, so... Um, DM stated that she was awoken at approximately 4 a.m. by what she claimed sounded like Kaylee playing with her dog in one of the upstairs bedrooms located on the third floor. A short time later, DM stated that she heard what she thought was Kaylee saying something to the effect of, there's someone here. Um, a review of records obtained from a forensic download of Xana's phone indicated that this could have also been her voice, as her phone showed that she was likely awake and scrolling through TikTok at around 4.12 a.m., um, whether she was referring to her DoorDash order or something completely separate is unclear. Um, it could, the, there's someone here could mean so many things. Right. Um, it could mean like, like I said, the DoorDash driver's here, like her telling Ethan, there's someone here. 
maybe it's my food or maybe or, thinking a friend was stopping by right or someone here could it could mean like there's someone inside it could mean there's someone at the door there's someone outside it could mean so many different things um unfortunately we don't we'll never know um who said it or what it actually meant and honestly in like the girlfriend boyfriend relationship it could mean something too like no we can't do that there's someone here right like there's lots of meanings that could be mm-hmm. behind that so many things um dm stated that she looked out of her bedroom door but did not see anything when she heard the comment about someone being in the house um that right there like the someone being in the house like like i said i don't necessarily take there's someone here to explicitly mean um there's someone in the house mm-hmm. That's just not what my brain goes to. Like, if I say to you, like, there's someone here. I'm sure, like, your first... Someone's at the door. Mm -hmm. Um, If someone's in the house, I'm going to say... Someone's in the house. There's someone in the house. (laughs) So, it could mean uh, a lot of different things. In which case, I'm not going to be in the house anymore. (laughs) Right. Um, She opened her door a second time when she heard what she thought was crying coming from Xana's room. Um, DM said that she then heard a male's voice say something to the effect of... It's okay. I'm going to help you. So how long had, do we know how much time had elapsed in between the first time and the second time she opened her door? I mean, it had to be minutes. A, yeah. Like, and by minutes, like maybe a minute and a half, okay. a very short amount of time, just because we know how quickly things happened. Um, I would assume a very short amount of time. Okay. Um, kind of want to touch on the male's voice, like hearing the male's voice. Um, there are a lot of people that think it could have been Ethan's voice. Um, I'm kind of in the camp where I don't think that is the case because unless they, the police like wanted to omit because they didn't like DM couldn't say for certain, um, if it was Ethan's voice, um, I do, however, think that like she was around him so often that she probably could have said with certainty, like, no, that was Ethan's voice saying that. Yeah, you um, can pick up pretty clearly other people's absolutely. voices. Um, so I do kind of lean more towards like the male voice being someone that she did not recognize saying things, which is incredibly terrifying and very sinister. What a fucking weird thing to say, knowing what you were going to do. Yeah. So at approximately 4.17 a.m., a security camera located at 1112 King Road, um, which is a residence immediately to the northeast of 1122 King Road, picked up distorted audio of what sounded like voices or a whimper, followed by a loud thud. Um, A dog can also be heard barking numerous times. This security camera is located less than 50 feet from the west wall of Zana's bedroom. So very, very close. Very close. Um, I'm feels kind of safe to assume that what it picked up was probably inside of her room unless there are crazy things going on outside um the dog barking leads me to believe that the audio that they picked up was probably inside of the house probably i think they're probably assuming that also um i do kind of want to take this moment to say there's a video floating around where people have claimed that that is the um security camera audio that the affidavit is talking about it's not Uh, Stop sharing it. It's not that. That has not been released to the public and probably never will be. No. Um, If it is, it will be played in court um, to a jury of people. So what you're hearing and what you're sharing is not that. That happened with something else not too long ago where they claimed it was the video of, or the recording of... Grizzly Man. Yeah. It's like Grizzly Man. They've done that for years. And And it's not. It's manufactured. 
Um, so there are like, who does that? right. There are people on the internet listening to this clip trying to like make out like, Oh, the, I heard this name and like this voice and this voice. It's not related at all. So just stop making yourself look dumb, please. <laughs> please God. It's not related. Leave, leave Don't it alone. Misled. Please. Um, yeah, so in the event that that audio is released, you're probably not going to find it first on TikTok. That's probably just a safe safe thing to assume. No, you might be able to hear it, like you said, in the court, mm-hmm. because this will be televised. Yeah. In court, it's set to be televised, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so Dam stated that she opened her door a third time after hearing crying. Um, she does not specify who she thought was crying, but she saw a figure clad in black clothing and a mask that covered the person's mouth and nose walking towards her. She described this figure as five foot 10 or taller, male, not very muscular, but athletically built with bushy eyebrows. It's a pretty good description. Mm-hmm. Um, at least enough to whittle it down to like men that are in this athletic build height frame with bushy eyebrows. I mean, yeah, that that's enough to kind of whittle your suspect list down a little bit. The male walked past her as she stood in a quote, frozen shock phase and walked towards the back sliding glass door. Um, she did not recognize this person and she locked herself in her room. There's been a lot of questions about whether or not people think he saw her or didn't see her. And I know you and I have kind of talked about this a little bit, and we were talking about how, you know, even if in the kitchen, because she was able to, right, right, he was in the kitchen, in that word, like that area. Yeah, I mean, where her bedroom was located, like the kitchen was almost directly across from it. Right, so like a kitchen common area may have been way more lit, better lit than the light, backlight from a bedroom. Mm-hmm. So it's very possible, and you and I talked about the fact that had he seen her, she probably would not be giving a statement right now because knowing that I think maximum casualty was the goal. Oh, absolutely. In in what this suspect did, Mm -hmm. what this killer did. Yeah. Even if uh, he was targeting only one person, it's very clear that when he got in there, he realized that one person wasn't uh, something that could happen and he had to take everybody um so i do not think that he saw her um i mentioned when we recorded this the first time her bedroom door opens inwards not outwards it's 4 17 4 20 in the morning it's probably really dark it's winter time it's probably pitch black in the house um so she probably saw him illuminated from like a street light maybe that was coming in from wherever i I'm pretty like 99.9% confident in saying that he did not see her because it only makes sense that he didn't like why. Yeah. I feel like he was probably frantically like, I need to get the fuck out of here. Yeah. Didn't see anything like that. Probably didn't expect other people to be in the home. Cause I did mention the first time we were recording. Um, one of the roommates was supposed to be out of town and had just gotten back a little bit earlier than they were supposed to. One of the surviving roommates and Kaylee had already moved out. So in the event that this person that we are kind of like led to assume later on that he was trailing this group of people or at least one of them, um, we probably had a good idea of the layout of the home, obviously had a good idea of the layout of the home and the occupants of the home and where they were going to be. So probably did not think that that many were going to be in there. Well, and you'd said 
to me earlier too that this was a very um, well-known party house and they mm -hmm. had big exuberant parties with yeah, lots of people all the time so it is conceivable that the murderer at one point in time might have been in the house partying or just watching mm -hmm. going around like, yeah, yeah going around finding out what where people stayed and things yeah. like that and could have gone completely unnoticed or because there were so many people there, no one thought anything about it. Mm -hmm. Like, no one even questioned whether or not a random person should yeah. be there. I mean, when I say, like, party house, there are three to five police body cam videos of the police showing up to this house um, for noise complaints. And one of them, there was a party happening inside the house. And I think they're talking to Xana on the phone. And none of the roommates who live there are even at the home. Mm -hmm. So, like, this massive party is happening at this house. And no one who lives there is even there. Um, and she's kind of pissed off on the phone. And she's like, I'm so sorry. Like, I'm going to come home right now. I'm like 10 minutes down the street. I don't know why this is happening yeah, at my house right no now. what's going on. Um, but yeah, so there are multiple times, big parties, um, party campus atmosphere. So yeah, that is fully possible and honestly probably the case. So the combination of DM statements to law enforcement, reviews of forensic downloads of records from BF and DM's phone, and video of a suspect, as described below, leads investigators to believe the homicides occurred between 4 a.m. and 4.25 a.m. Our cats are fighting in the background. But um, 25 minutes is an incredibly short amount of time, but I believe that that window is probably even shorter than what we are told. Um, knowing that Xana received a DoorDash at around like 4 a.m., probably a little bit after four in the morning. Um, I and do even like the TikToks. Knowing yeah, being on her phone at 4:12 in the morning. Um, I do think it's probably somewhere in between like 15 minutes. It it, it, it when this occurred. Even 10 if you go by the timeline that was established by DM, like looking out and yeah. things like that. It, does not sound like it happened incredibly quickly. Um, and I do want to say, just kind of like touch on it here and now, just kind of like nip it in the bud. Um, a lot of people are very critical of DM. Um, they have been since the beginning. Um, that's fine if that's how the route that you decide to go down. Um, that's not the one that I decided to go down because I have never been in a situation like this. Um, and I have no idea how I would react as a 19 year old girl. Um, like we said, it was a party house. Who knows if she even thought that it was something weird that was happening. I mean, based on what she heard, it's really not that much. And people have been kind of like talking about like her statement. I mean, what she heard isn't enough to gain a conviction of no. somebody. So she only heard Kaylee playing with the dog. Someone saying, I think someone's here. And what she thought sounded like someone crying. And then she saw a person. I mean, it's not this grandiose amount of shit that people think that she saw. But I'm sure that her roommates had people occasionally come in and out that she may not have known. Right. I mean, her roommates all had boyfriends. Yeah. Um, or people that they probably were casually seeing. Right. Things like that. Or just happened. friends or whatever. Yeah. Um, she was scared. I mean, her, the frozen shock phase, she, that does mean that she was scared, but I'm not in the camp of like judging her for her actions. No. Um, I have no idea what I would do. You guys have no idea what you would do, so just leave her alone. Um, so on the morning of November 13th, the two roommates at the home who were not injured woke up later in the morning and summoned friends to the home because they believed that one of the victims had passed out and was not waking up. 
A call to 911 was made just before noon about an unconscious person at the residence, police said. Um, arriving officers found the door to the residence open and discovered the bodies of four fatally stabbed students. So this is another thing that people bring up. Um, the fact that how could she see all of this and then not call the police until noon? Also, I, and I do understand where people are coming from, where unconscious and stabbed mm -hmm. probably look like a lot of diff totally different things. Right. So I could see how people are like, okay, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But we don't know if the person was stabbed and that part of their body was on the ground. We don't know if it was an incredibly bloody. I, uh -huh. I mean, we also don't know. I mean, I've listened to enough, uh, 911 calls to know like how dispatchers relay information to the police. So it could have been something where they do get a phone call from people who are freaking out and they're like, we don't know what's going on. Um, my friend's on the floor. He's not waking up. They could have mentioned that there is blood, yeah. but the 911 dispatcher simply tells the police There's that you're responding person. to an unconscious person at a residence. Yeah. I mean, they, at that time, I guarantee the people weren't like the, who called 911 thought that he had been, they, or who, yeah, well, he, we do know that the person that they were referring to was Ethan, um, on the 911 call. Um, I don't think uh, there are so many things that could have happened. Could have gotten lost in translation, frantic 911 call, shock, shock, like pure shock. So many things could have happened. And I'm sure that these, um, young ladies are going to testify mm -hmm. and more information will become, will be coming out. So yeah. we'll get to know. And I'm sure we'll hear from the friends who were called over people who made the 911 calls um, because the call came from a roommate's phone, a surviving roommate's phone, but it did not come from a surviving roommate. So that also leads me to believe that they probably saw more than what um, somebody were told to and they were probably freaking the fuck out and were like, yeah, I can't be on the phone right now. Someone call 911. Um, according to the police, when they arrived, there was no sign of forced entry or damage to the home. But like we had talked about earlier and you had talked about earlier, people didn't lock their doors. Right. So um, there would be no need to force your way into a house that was kept unlocked all mm -hmm. the time. Um, and there are a lot of interviews of students who lived or who went to University of Idaho who said that like there are so many people coming going from their home at all times and it was easier to just leave their door unlocked because we know that 10 people are showing up in the next five hours. We don't know when they're showing up. We're just going to leave the door unlocked for them to come in when they do show up. Um, we don't know if the door was unlocked. Um, I do know that there are at least three ways to enter the home. Um, we know that there's a sliding glass door, a front door, and there is upstairs on the third floor, um, a balcony with a deck that is an outside door. Um, so we do know that there are three ways to get in, which, I mean, if well, you're not locking your doors, that's three separate ways. Well, sliding glass doors are notoriously easy mm -hmm. to get into also. And that's why you're supposed to put like a little block uh, of wood underneath it. Or get a, like a sliding glass door bar yeah there's ways to block them mm -hmm. um so the next day monday november 14th moscow police issued a statement identifying the four homicide victims as ethan kaylee Zana, and maddie police said the details were limited and that no one was in custody and they added that moscow police did not believe there was an ongoing community risk based on information gathered during the preliminary investigation which, which is boo-boo number one yeah <laughs> Not something you say, uh, not something that helps put people's minds at ease at all. 
Um, you don't have a suspect in custody. You have no clue who this person is at this point. There is absolutely an ongoing risk. Yes. Uh, community risk. Well, and, and you want to keep people vigilant also mm-hmm. because if you have nobody in custody and you don't know who it is, don't really have a suspect. Right. You don't want people to let their guard down and then become another victim. Or not only that, but be on the lookout for people you know who are acting weird. Right. Like if you see, that's like something they say all the time. If you know someone and they're starting to act a little strange, maybe, yeah, maybe report it. Um, once you say, the minute you say that there is no ongoing risk, um, people's guards are down. People aren't looking for stuff. Um, thank God that isn't what happened in this case because people left University of Idaho in flocks as as they should, because they were terrified. Um, Didn't they do the rest of the semester online after? Yeah. Yeah. Which they should have. They should have. Well, yeah, because they, I'm sure a lot of people knew them. Mm -hmm. They were all... Professors. I mean, professors probably didn't want to come... Sorority sisters. Right. Fraternity brothers, friends. Mm -hmm. The poor... Siblings. I was going to say the poor people's triplets, siblings, and Ethan's triplets. Mm Mm-hmm. So, the next day, on Tuesday, November 15th, Moscow police issued a statement saying that an edged weapon, such as a knife, was used in the killings. No suspects were in custody and no murder weapon had been found, police said. Also, based on information from the preliminary investigation, investigators believe this was an isolated, targeted attack and there is no imminent threat to the community at large, police said. So, they said it twice. They said it twice and I also don't know how... Um, still to this day, don't know how, unless we learn like significantly more. Um, I mean, we kind of know a little bit that possibly, uh, the suspect was kind of stalkerish and stalking one of the victims at this time, there would have been absolutely no way that they could have thought that this was isolated. If anything, I, I would think by seeing that you would be like, this is terrifying like there's we see like no motive this is a town where this doesn't happen in these are four kids who have absolutely no ties to any like suspicious people or anything like that that does not feel very isolated to me at all it feels incredibly random actually and i can understand the police not wanting to create a panic but there is a there's a middle road too Mm -hmm. between complete oblivion and sheer unadulterated terror yeah you have to tell people we don't know keep your eye out protect yourself lock your doors don't walk in the dark by yourself stay in groups like keep your eyes peeled there are a lot of things that you should say that cannot cause immediate panic but can also not just be like out of pure what feels like ignorance i I don't understand the reasoning not trying to shit on the police but i don't understand why you would yeah. Why you would make those statements. And also by them saying that so soon, I mean, this is two days after, people thought that they already had a suspect. And they we know for a fact that they didn't for another week and a half. Which is probably why all the internet sleuths were looking at the... Roommates, people on video. driver. Yeah. And the guy a- absolutely. outside of the grub truck and things like that because, oh, well, there has to be somebody that they've seen. Yeah. Yeah. This isn't an isolated attack. We think you have no reason to be worried and obviously it's someone that they were just with, you know, right. like stuff like that. Or a friend or that. Their roommates. Roommates. Probably yeah. lots of reasons why they became suspects in the public Absolutely. Specter. 
Um, so later in the day, police released another statement attempting to calm fears of the killer on the loose, uh, because like we said, them saying that did not help things. And they absolutely had a killer on the loose. <laughs> yes. Um, we hear you and we understand your fears, police said. Uh, we, are, we determined early in the investigation that we do not believe there is an ongoing threat for community members. Evidence indicates that this was a targeted attack. So they said it twice. What uh, evidence? I would like to don't know. know. Is there evidence? We really don't know. Uh, Wednesday, November 16th, Police Chief Fry held a news conference, the department's first in the case, and reiterated that there was no suspect. Um, he also backtracked at this time on the assurances of no one at risk. Uh, we cannot say there's no threat to the community, Fry said, and as we have stated, please stay vigilant, report any suspicious activity, and be aware of your surroundings at all times. Should have been the first thing you said. Uh, and as we have <laughs> stated, but you didn't state that. I'm sure at some point in passing they did say, be vigilant. Yeah. Remain vigilant. Maybe. But, um, no, that really should have been, like, the first and only thing you said. Like, you're, there is. We're working together evidence. We cannot say point. there's we no threat. We don't have a suspect. Please remain vigilant and keep your guard up. Yes. Boom. I'm a cop now. Yeah. <laughs> right. Could be so easy. Uh, this is also the time in which, uh, police chief Fry did confirm that the two other roommates were home at the time of the attack and that they were not injured. There were other people home at that time, but we're not just folk, not just focusing just on them. We're focusing on everybody that may be coming and going from that residence. So that statement right there kind of suggests that, that they, they were suspects. at the beginning. Mm hmm probably focusing on them i and mean at that point have. you have to have everybody i you guess focus on right. everybody um when we say like cleared as suspects that means that probably at one point they were suspects so well, when yeah. you get like the grub truck people um the person who drove them home the doordash driver the roommates the ex-boyfriends who very quickly got involved in this even though they lived hours away um they probably went through a series of interviews with confirmed alibis and they were cleared and that's what good Police. Absolutely. Officers if do. you want Good the person who do. actually did it, you have to clear the people who could have but didn't. Um, at this time, most of the students who remained on campus went home early for Thanksgiving break, as most would. They did not feel safe and were uncomfortable remaining in the general area of the murders given absolutely no information of a suspect was known to the public. And there was no one in custody. Do you wonder, and I hate to speculate and ponder, but if... There was intent to have maybe more of a spree and the lack of people remaining there might have altered the plan. I mean, I guess it's possible. Um, I don't think so given, well, I can't say because I don't want. I know. This... I'm just, I'm just posing a hypothetical because it just now popped in my head. I mean, head it's that, always possible. That yeah. I don't think you just do something this horrible and then just move on with your life. I feel like that is the kind of behavior that is going to progressively escalate, and I am not sure. I mean, I, I just I guess we'll never know. Well, maybe. Hopefully, unless, they have the correct person. I was gonna say, unless it's not the right person. Um, we're not saying that we think that, by the way. No, this no, person is the wrong person. No, um, <laughs> we're not saying that. All right, you want to take a short little yeah, break we'll take here? a little break, and then we'll continue. There's a lot to get through. All right, we will be back in a minute. Uh, 
Now we are back, and I have been informed that I'm umming a lot. And <laughs> Sorry. I just watched that episode of Everybody Loves Raymond, where he goes on the talk show, and his family tells him he did a great job, but afterwards they tell him that he pronounced asks as acts and like five <laughs> other words wrong. So the next time he goes on TV, that's all he can do is pronounce the words wrong because he's now aware of it. So I'm going to try to not um as much. I usually don't. You don't, and that's why I wanted to tell you, because you're usually pretty good about that. Yeah, I'm not much of an ummer or a liker. I feel like I'm pretty good at not using filler words, but... I think you're probably tired from working all day. And... Yeah, I did work seven hours, but it's okay. Okay, so I'm going to try not to um. I also think I do that a lot with stream of consciousness, like when I kind of go off on tangents. Yeah. It's kind of just like my brain trying to catch up. I wouldn't have mentioned it, because now people are going to focus on it, so... Well, focus on it. I'm Ray Romano. <laughs> Uh, November, I did it again. Oh, no, that was an uh, not okay. an um. On November 17th, 2022, so we're skipping ahead. No, just the next day, actually. Uh, this is when the autopsies were made public. The Spokane County Medical Examiner's Office, they conducted their autopsies on the victims. The Lataw County Coroner shared the initial information that all four were stabbed multiple times. The coroner stated that the victims were likely asleep when they were attacked, though some had defensive wounds and none of the victims showed signs of sexual assault. I said this last time when we recorded the first time, I'm going to reiterate it because I do think it's important. I am not really in the side of things that believes that most or all of the victims were asleep when they were attacked. I think we have information that proves that that is not the case, that at least one of them was awake, if not two. Um, They had defensive wounds and... And I do think this is verified, and if it's not, I'm sorry if I'm speaking out of turn, but I have heard this multiple times, that Ethan was not found in bed. He was found, like, kind of in a doorway, which would indicate that he was up at some point. Probably got up in response to someone's here. Yeah, if he had been asleep, he was not at the time of the attack. So my, and I'm going to go back to, I still, I think this has so many similarities to the Amityville case where you have five people, six people. How many DeFeos were there? Uh, three siblings and no, not two DeFeos. parents. Um, yeah. Five. Shot to death in their beds and no one wakes up. And I just wonder how do you six. stab someone? four people and no one make a sound and nobody wake up and at least especially they're all in the same bedroom they're like two by two Mm -hmm. it just to me is a very strange thing that happened that the killer was able to stab all four of them and no one like the roommates didn't hear like loud screaming or anything like that it to me is just very odd the one thing that i will say and i'm not going to get into anything uh, regarding their bodies because in the affidavit the police like this they start the affidavit by saying or describing what they walked into and we do know the weapon that they are looking for and it is a i think it's i don't know if you pronounce it k bar or cubar knife uh it's like ka dash br but i think it's just k bar which is a massive knife people that have owned that own the knife have posted pictures with the knife like by their torso showing its length and it is huge I'm so it right in now. the event that you are like stabbing oh, yeah, it's like a jungle knife it's massive like you would cut bamboo down with this thing. like i'm talking like 
in the event that you were trying to kill someone with it and you slash forward, you're probably only going to take one um, if you hit them where, yeah, where you're trying to. So that could also be why you don't, they didn't hear as much that you didn't hear like struggling or suffering because it Happens would have fast. happened so fast. Do, uh, you may talk about this, but has an autopsy report been released that says Not, how many stab wounds or anything? No. So no, the, even in the affidavit, they talk about the autopsies and what they revealed, but it's redacted. Okay. So I think it's just simply because that's probably something that they will use in the trial. And also something that really we, the public don't need to know. I don't know why we think that we are owed that information sometimes of like these brutal descriptions of people's bodies and what happened to them. I personally don't really want to know uh, what they found. It would just clear up a lot of of suspicion. We do know that uh, there were defensive wounds and I don't know if it's been confirmed, but a lot of people believe that the defensive wounds were either on Xana or Kaylee, one of the two. Um, So yeah, that if you want to look up that knife, it's fucking huge. People have, yeah. yeah, like put it in proximity to like a grown man's thigh. It's like a crocodile dundee knife. It is massive. Yeah. A massive knife. So it would have been very fast. And we know by the timeline that we're given that it was very fast and swift. And sounds horrible to say, but thank God it was fast. And not one of those things where they were just left to bleed, to bleed out, out yeah. and suffer for 12 hours. So I like to think that it was fast. So, um, also I did mention the first time we recorded it, I want to mention again, the, there's been a lot of controversy surrounding the coroner who is in this case because she has done a full on like media tour and it's been kind of gross feeling to me because usually coroners are very hands off on things. Like they are just there to do the autopsy, present what they find and that's it. Like yeah. they don't want to talk about things they are very professional usually and very reserved and reclusive. I mean, and will be called as a witness. Absolutely. Um, we saw on the Murdoch trial, the coroner was a key witness yeah. called by like both sides of the prosecution and the defense. So yeah, she it's has been... It's not uncommon for a coroner to, if up with the police, to give right. some information, but to do it on their own is Yeah, she's done like individual like... That's usually not very... It's, it's been weird. not make it at your 15 minutes. No, absolutely not. On December 7th, so we are skipping ahead a little bit here, investigators said that they are interested in speaking with the occupant or occupants of a white 2011 to 2013 Hyundai Elantra spotted near the crime scene around the time of the killings. It's at this time that investigators begin to ask for any and all people to be on the lookout for this car and to give any and all tips regarding the car and the owner of the car to law enforcement immediately. This request came after neighborhood surveillance videos showed a white sedan driving by the dead end street where the victims lived several times between 3.29 a.m. and 4.04 a.m. on November 13th. The vehicle was then seen quickly driving out of the area at approximately 4.20 a.m. A forensic examiner identifies the make, model, and possible year of vehicle. So also if we are to believe that this is the car of the person who committed this crime, then we do know for a fact that the time it took to commit these crimes was much shorter. Yeah. Because the timeline that they gave, I think, was like from 4 to 4.25 in the morning. If you're seeing this car leave the scene at 4.20, that shortens it even more. Yeah. If that is the person who actually did it in that car. 
Um, investigators believe that the occupants of this vehicle may have critical information to share regarding the, the case, the police statement said, and it also noted that the, the car currently had an unknown license plate. So I'm going to skip ahead even a little bit more to December 30th when the police announced that a suspect had been taken into custody and the world was introduced to the alleged perpetrator, Brian Koberger. At this time, police said that they had received about 20,000 tips through more than 9,025 emails, over 4,500 phone calls, and over 6,000 digital media submissions, and they had conducted over 300 interviews in the case of the four students slain in their off-campus home. So that is a lot of info to sort A through. lot. Um, the 300 interviews might seem very small, but I, if you already kind of like at this point have someone that you think is your is your guy, why you don't really need to do more than what you're doing. Yeah, but they, they have to. You have to. Yeah, I mean, you have to look into yeah. every tip, but every tip that you receive and looking into it doesn't always result in an interview. No. Um, and given how large this case had gotten online, I'm going to assume that a, a lot of the tips they received probably weren't great. And a lot of the interviews are probably, like we talked about earlier, the two roommates ex-boyfriends, teachers, teachers, um, people at the sororities and frats mm -hmm. and people that had seen them out that night. Lots of family, lots of those people. So you can probably say at least 50 or more are going to be just those close people to them. Absolutely. And not that they're all suspects, but that they might have information to give. Right. On. Or even like the people who own the corner club bar that the girls were at the night before. Yeah, or anybody strange People who saw them there that night. Like all kinds they of stuff. normal. The grub truck. People who were in the crowd at the grub truck. Like a bunch of people. Yeah. So, uh, November 20... Oh, hold on. Here through we go. Sorry, I picked... Skip something. So through the arrest and investigation into Brian Koberger, we find out many details regarding his actions before and after the murders on King Road. Five days after the murders, Koberger received a new license plate for his white Hyundai Elantra. Court documents citing Washington State uh, licensing records revealed that he changed the registration of his white Elantra from Pennsylvania plates to Washington State license plates. Washington requires plates on both the front and back of a vehicle, while Pennsylvania only requires rear plates. So, if we're going to think that he's acting... I'm not suspiciously. Yeah. So in the eyes or in the mind of someone who had just committed a crime, you would think that if you, there's a possibility that your vehicle would have been captured on CCTV footage, you would probably want to get rid of something that would make your car more identifiable and going from one license plate to two or two to one. And, might do and that. that in a different state and mm -hmm. that information was released to the public we're yeah. looking for this car yeah just an unknown license plate which i mean five days after the crimes were committed if you're changing your license plate they're not going to know what the license plate is because it just went from what well, could be this license plate but now that license plate's not coming up registered to anybody yeah. now you're looking for something completely different does seem calculated yes so november 29th a WSU police officer learned that a 2015 white Elantra with a Pennsylvania license plate was registered to Brian Koberger. The officer tracked down Koberger's driver's license and noted that he fit the description of the masked man given by the roommate. Koberger was a 28-year-old, or is, sorry, a 28-year-old PhD student in criminology 
at Washington State University. Uh, WSU is in Pullman, Washington, which is eight miles from Moscow. I know when this first came out, when I was like trying to picture in my head Washington to Idaho, it seemed so far away to me. Yeah. It is literally right up the road. Eight miles, what is that? A 20-minute drive, if that. Yeah, if. If that. So it's super close. On December 13th, Koberger's vehicle is seen in Loma, Colorado. On December 15th, Koberger, traveling to Pennsylvania with his father, is stopped by law enforcement twice in Hancock County, Indiana. They are let go with warnings both times. We do know now that these were intentional traffic stops that they were directed and guided to do, so the police at this time are trailing him. Uh, we kind of talked last time. They we don't. They, there's some speculation that they are trying to get a look at his hands mm-hmm. because of the possible defensive wounds and maybe somebody had been able to like scratch him up or do mm-hmm. anything. And from what I remember from the video, it did look like his hands had Yeah, but some... it's such a shitty quality video. Yeah, and why these, is that? These videos, it's so zoomed in. Yeah. Like you can't make out anything. And even if it wasn't that zoomed in, the quality is so shit. And I don't know if it's because we're looking at him. You, these videos you can look up, by the way, they're on YouTube or wherever you want to find them. Just to kind of describe it. It's from the passenger side, and he's driving. So we see his dad really close. Brian's just kind of in the background, and it's very shadowy. Can't really, like, see a lot that's going on. I mean, his hands, like... The reason for that is His hands even look shadowed. Like, his hands... Oh, well, yeah, I know. I'm just trying to describe. But his hands, like... I can't tell if there's cuts or if it's the shadow or if he just has really bony hands because he's a tall, bony dude. I can't tell what it is. I have made, no clue. That whole thing never made sense to me anyway, because at this point, a full month has passed. Right. So your hands are going to be pretty much healed. Your hands heal very quickly. Well, I almost wonder if maybe they think he might have like cut himself, because we do find later that the the smoking gun in the case here is the knife sheath that was left mm-hmm. behind. With blood and on it. Like, like we said, or DNA. We don't know what kind of DNA. I think we're kind of led to believe that it's skin particles on the sheath? snap of the mm-hmm. sheath. With the size of the knife that you have, a sheath is probably 100% necessary because if you're just like willy-nilly with this knife, it's fucking massive. You're going to hurt yourself. So I almost wonder if they were trying to see if maybe he cut himself, like there's a visible knife wound on his hand because the knife is massive and they know for a fact that whoever was wielding that knife lost the sheath. There was also some other talk that it was to see where they were going mm-hmm. so they knew where to be looking yes, for him, absolutely which may the hands may have nothing to do with it it mm-hmm. might simply have just been hey you were falling too close to that car so where are you heading in such a yeah. hurry that is what they pulled them over for too trailing both times yeah so they were too close behind like a semi i think i mean they are getting pulled over in indiana which we know now that they were heading to pennsylvania that is where Brian's family lived, and that's where he's from. It was Christmas break, so his dad flew into Washington, helped him like pack his stuff for Christmas for break, month. and then drove him to Pennsylvania because the drive from Washington to Pennsylvania is incredibly long. Yeah. I um, mean, one person probably, I wouldn't want to do that by myself, no. and I wouldn't want my kid doing it by themselves. So that is allegedly, or what we are to believe, happened there. I do think that they were pulling him over to get that information to one, verify that this is the person that we're looking for uh, tied to this car. And this is the car that we're looking for. And two, where are they going? So we don't lose them. Cause at this point he's been seen in Colorado. He is in Indiana. 
he's a long ways away from where he typically is. So they were probably in the back of their heads like, we really hope this man is not fleeing right now. And didn't you say that when asked what they were doing, the dad had some really strange story about trying to get him away from a, oh, yeah. a mass shooter? Uh-huh. So yeah, and both times that they were pulled over, and I'm in no way saying that his dad or parents had any clue that Brian was attached, if he is attached to any of this. I'm not saying that his parents had any idea because I genuinely don't think they did. No, his dad looked like, he to me, was just way too relaxed. Absolutely. And, and very he, conversational. Looked like he, someone who was very eager to talk. He looked like somebody who just wanted to be like, oh, hey. Yeah, this what? is what's going We're on. Doing this, this is what my son's doing. He's a PhD yeah. student and whatever. He seemed very proud of his yes. son. But both times they're pulled over, they mention a, both of them mention a, quote, mass shooting in Washington at WSU, Washington State University. And what they're referring to was not a mass shooting and not a shooting at all. It's like a, I think a person with a gun, like an armed suspect was seen on campus. And that's what they're referring to, which I don't know if Brian related to his dad as mass shooting. I want to get away from there. I want to leave, yeah. like get me out of here. And that's kind of just what his dad ran with and didn't look into it further. But I thought it was very strange that they brought that up not once, but twice. But it was also his dad bringing it up and Brian in the background kind of looked at him a couple like, times like, please shut, yeah. shut up. Yeah. Like you're speaking a little too much because the cops were in response. Like what? What are you talking about? Mass yeah. shooting at WSU. That. Like, I don't know. You're when did about. that happen? And it didn't happen. It's very strange. Well, and conceivably, the dad should have heard about the murders at the <laughs> campus, not too far from where yeah. I summited school. So why that's not something brought up right. doesn't make any sense. It almost makes you think that he mentioned that a lot of times to his dad to kind of like push Gloss him over. away from Maybe. the. Idaho thing because well, this not... happened at my campus and that happened there. Um, I, once again, I don't want to say that we're saying that Brian is guilty, innocent whatever, until innocent guilty. until proven guilty. I'm just simply speaking in terms that if he was guilty, this is kind of how I could see the thought process going. Um, and also if he was guilty in that video, if you're looking at it through the line lens of a guilty person, Brian looks terrified yeah. that man looks like he is shitting his pants in the driver's seat the second his dad starts speaking and it's not like a oh i'm nervous because i got pulled over type thing it's more of like a oh i'm nervous because my dad is talking a lot yeah and, and giving him a lot of information and i would about really me. just like to go and yeah and like this man now knows that i go to wsu he's pulling me over in indiana he now knows that i'm a student there he just gave him so much info about me which he could have gotten anyway well, yeah, and he already running, knew. I mean, he already knew by, by pulling him over, plates. but Brian didn't know that they were trailing him. So, yeah. Yeah, and, and it is hard to know if he was acting nervous or if that was normal. I mean, we'll demeanor. know when the trial's over yeah. which one it was. Because he does have very intense features. His eye, um, yeah, his brow makes him constantly look furrowed. And, and, and the there's an intensity... In his eyes in general because it is such an... And his jaw is very, like, ten like yeah, intense. Yeah, it's a very aggressive face. Yeah. The only word I can think of. He has a very aggressive face and it's hard to tell watching the video if he just looks like he's bugging because he's bugging or because that's just what he looks mm -hmm. like. Like, he might just... You know how some people have resting bitch face. He might just have... Resting, resting scary face. Yeah, maybe. Because, yeah, no, for real... He, there are people who have like very soft faces and he does not, he does not. He has a no. very strong face, yeah. which a lot of other people have very strong faces, 
He has strong cheeks, strong jaw, strong brow bone, strong brows. Eyes are like very deep. I mean, very, and I'm not trying to be insulting. Very Cave Manny. Yeah, very Neanderthal yeah. looking. Yeah. Um, like that kind of intense. So picture that if you don't And know. his dad is the complete opposite. His dad's yeah. like a little jelly bean. He was like a little ginger, wasn't he? No, I don't know. I think he had gray hair, but <laughs> he was the complete opposite. Yeah. All right. Quite We're the digressing. juxtaposition. Yeah. Um. So in December 23rd, which is about a week after, exactly a week after, a week and a day. Officials obtain a warrant to search Koberger's phone records. The records show that the phone was in Pullman, Washington at 2.42 a.m. on November 13th, but it then stopped reporting to the network. It did not connect again until 4.48 a.m. This can happen when a phone is turned off or in airplane mode. And at approximately 4.48 a.m. on November 13th, Brian's phone reconnected to the cell uh, to a cell network at a location south of Moscow. I, I just wonder why, if you're going to turn your phone off, if he indeed, indeed is the person, which we don't know yet, um, why would you not wait to turn your phone off till you got back home, or turn it back on? I mean, why well, just not even bring it? Yeah, and make it look like your phone was on the whole time. Yeah, in Washington. And as a criminology student, I mean, this is what a lot of people have said. This man is a PhD criminology student. He's not stupid. Right. Um, he is... I do also want to say, though, a lot of people thought that, like, just by him being a criminology PhD student, that it made him some Dexter-like criminal savant. A lot of criminology PhD students came forward and they were like, this is not what we talk about in our classes. We don't yeah. talk about how to get away with murder. We don't talk about how to commit crimes. We don't talk about stuff like that. And actually, apparently it's quite frowned upon in those classes to talk about stuff like that because they're kind of just trying to learn the ins and outs of law enforcement and how to be like investigators and crime scene analysts and stuff like that. They're not trying to see like... Didn't one of them say that his proposed thesis got denied because mm -hmm. it was so dark and out of the realm of what they were supposed to be covering. Yeah. Well, we also find out that Reddit post the survey that he's doing for one of his grad school things that was heavily looked down upon where Brian was trying, and this is confirmed that was him where he was trying to reach out to ex criminals who had gotten away with a crime. And he didn't specify murder. He didn't specify what kind of crime. But the questions that he was asking, he was asking people to anonymously tell them, tell him what it felt like to get away with the crime, uh, what they did before in preparation of the crime, what they did afterwards after committing their crime, how they felt during the crime, if it like relieved anything, oh if it God, made them feel like, bad. It's almost like serial killer. Fetish. So yeah, that is like something that he was doing, and it was like a proposed grad study of his that one of his I guess cohorts or professors that he worked alongside as a TA was kind of helping him with. But a lot of people that he was going to school with and colleagues were kind of like, oh, that's a little weird. Like, yeah. We, we don't really do stuff like that. Dial it back. Dial it back. Yeah. Tone it down, please. Yeah, being quirky, though, doesn't make you a murderer. No. Again, we do not know. It's just, I'm just trying to build the profile of Brian Koberger. Yeah. So you have everything you need to know to make your own conclusion. So cell phone records also revealed that Brian's phone was close to the crime scene between 9.12 a.m. and 9.21 a.m. on November 13th, so the morning after the crime was committed. Historical location data indicated that Brian's phone had been near the King Road residence 12 times before November 13th, and these visits go back to at least August 2022. 
Which creates a pattern. It is a pattern. And a lot of people were kind of saying, well, could it just be like the town has one main cell tower that in the event that you're driving in this area, it pings to? That is not the case. If you're pinging near that home, that means you are in the direct proximity of the home. It's not like you're just... Not near like a... 20 minutes away. Not near like a grocery store or a shopping center or... Is it a main thoroughfare? No. Okay. It's not. So he was... He was there. Intentionally driving by there. Yes. Or stopping or whatever he was doing. Um, December 27th, Pennsylvania authorities recovered trash from the Koberger family's residence in Chestnut Hill Township, uh, Monroe County, and sent it to the Idaho State Lab for testing. On November 28th, the next day, DNA on the trash is compared to DNA on the knife sheath that was found at the scene of the murders, and it is determined to be a match of the biological father of the suspect. Isn't there some talk about that evidence possibly not being able to be admissible in court because it um, wasn't obtained via a search warrant? No, because they do that all the time. I thought I heard that, and that they can use it to connect DNA, but they cannot use it as part of the criminal prosecution. I mean, I guess that could be the, the case. They've obtained so much more via warrant from him that it wouldn't even matter. Uh, they have already, they have his DNA. So I'm just wondering, cause I think I heard that. And, and if, who knows, I hear stuff sometimes. Right. And- <laughs> I don't know. I get, I haven't heard that, but it could be the case. I mean, if some of you are wondering the biological father, you'd be like, well, that's not him. Like what, what are the, whatever. I think it's like something like 99.9999999999% that that has to be your dad, the suspect's dad, the DNA. There's no like blurriness there. They are very confident. On December 29th, based on the information gathered, law enforcement secured an arrest warrant for Koberger. Uh, They did it in like a midnight raid, essentially. They did it overnight. So they thought he was a flight risk, probably. Uh, I don't know. I don't know if they were kind of also doing that to mitigate, like, embarrassing the family by doing it, like, in broad daylight. It's kind of weird, though. You can see, you can watch. um, There are air traffic trackers that you can watch, and you can go to this specific date over this residence, and you can watch the helicopter, like, swarming his house for hours. So he had to be, like, in there, like, what is going on? What's going on? Like, yeah. I can hear, like, a helicopter. They were watching him for a long time to make sure, one, that he was in there, two, they had the right house, all of that. I'm picturing the scene from Goodfellas. Yeah, so they did, they arrested him in a midnight raid. Uh, apparently, he went with no fight. He was like, okay, you got me, whatever. Um, he was taken into custody early in the morning by the Pennsylvania State Police at a, oh, typo. Uh, He was charged at this time with four counts of first-degree murder and one count of felony burglary. Was something taken or is that just entering a residence without permission? That is just entering a residence without permission because I also thought that. I was like, did they find something from the home on him? The felony burglary in Idaho is simply he broke into a house, suspected that he broke into a house that he was not supposed to be in. Um, Burglary is a weird, broad term that can mean a lot of things. breaking and entering. Right. Um, but I mean, they don't know if he broke in, but he did enter <laughs> allegedly. Well, burglary to me just indicates theft, but maybe right. I just don't know enough. So on January 3rd, 2023, Koberger appeared in court in Pennsylvania. Uh, he agreed at this time to be extradited back to Idaho, where a judge had issued a gag order that barred attorneys and officials from discussing the case with the public. So a lot of people thought he had two options to agree to be extradited or to 
is it either what you waive extradition is that agreeing to be extradited if you waive extradition that means you volunteer to come back okay so he volunteered to come back the other one is where you can say i'm not waiving extradition in the event that that happens the courts then have to file a shit ton of paperwork to get him to idaho at this point he it's almost an admission of guilt in the public eye well also so, yeah it, i mean it, it could be either of whatever he people assumed back. people assumed that he wouldn't have uh agreed to be extradited but it's also assumed that he agreed agreed to be extradited because up until this point the affidavit could not be released to the public until he was present in an Idaho courtroom. It's very hard so, to build a, build a defense if had, you don't know yeah, what they have. He had no idea what they had against him at this time, and he wouldn't until he was back in Idaho. So, I mean, why sit in a jail cell for however long and there's nothing you can do, guilty or innocent, if you have no idea what they have against you? On January 4th, uh, after arriving in Idaho via plane, Koberger was booked into Latal County Jail, which is connected to the Latal County Courthouse in Moscow. The next day, on January 5th, he appeared before Latal County Magistrate Judge Megan Marshall, who ordered him to be held without bail. January... Already proven that he's going to leave, so that makes sense. Yeah. January 12th, Koberger, who was being represented by public defender Ann Taylor, returned to court for his second appearance. Um, at this time, he waived his right to a speedy trial. The day before, January 11th, his public defender applied for a speedy trial, which essentially, I, after a request for a spe speedy trial is granted, I believe you have like 40 days to have the trial start and like end. Like you have to do it at, by law, by constitutional law at that point. The defendant is the only person who can waive speedy trial rights. The judge can't waive them. Uh, the lawyers can't waive them. You yourself are the only person who can waive your constitutional right to a speedy trial. And why would you waive that? Um, once again, I do believe it is his defense saying we need way more time to figure out what the fuck we're going to do for yeah. you. Yeah. Uh, the trial's preliminary hearing is set to begin June 26th, and Koberger currently remains in custody. So we have a little bit to go. Uh, due to the gag order and the preliminary hearing being months away, this is where we sit as far as existing and new information goes. We will not know more for months, and even then, a trial of this magnitude could potentially take years to reach a resolution. I doubt uh, it. I don't know. The preliminary hearing, who knows when they're even going to set a trial date. Like, a trial date could be next year. Typically, when you do um, preliminary hearings, if it's in June, usually it's like 30 days after that the trial begins, because... The lawyers have already done most of their work at that point in time. I do think jury selection is going to be incredibly difficult in this case. Probably, but... Which might take a decent amount of time. I mean, we just watched the Murdoch trial and how many jurors did they kick off for speaking four, to the three, press. Four, yeah. Well, two had COVID. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. One of them was having conversations she shouldn't have been having. And you'd be surprised how easy it is to find people who pay no attention to... You just have to go into the, into the boonies and find people who don't have social media or phones. Or just and care. literally just yeah. don't speak to people about stuff like this and have no clue what's going on. Um, however, I don't know. Yeah, I do think so it's going to be a when the gag order was issued, did was that before the coroner decided to go on her? No. 
Okay, so she stopped speaking. She, by, okay. she has to. Well, yeah, I mean, that's she what I was talk. wondering if she was going to get... Um, They're all under a gag order. Like, every single person who is attached to this is under a gag order. Uh, the only thing that I think we've gotten since that gag order, a week or so ago, we got the documents of what they seized in a, the search warrant or the search of his apartment and his car. Did they ever talk about house. a knife? Did they ever recover the knife? Uh, they haven't found the knife. They've they seized guns and knives, uh, not the knife. Uh, also, it's very strange. It's something that I kind of just want to mention. The sheath has USMC emblemed on it. It's a Marine Corps sheath. He has no ties to the Marine Corps. Apparently, it's a knife that you see very often in like pawn shops or like knife stores. It's not a knife that's made anymore that you can just like go buy. So it's a collector. Uh, so it's like a collector's knife. So people were kind of thinking like, oh, I wonder if the person who did that used that sheath and left it behind on purpose to kind of throw people off. Like, oh, maybe it's a Marine, someone in the Marine Corps or someone who has ties to the Marine Corps. I don't think so. I think if the suspect in custody is the person that committed the crimes, I do not know that. I think the fact that the cell phone was pinging near the house the next day is probably an attempt to recover the sheath. It's either that or uh, I'm going to drive by and see if police have showed up yet. It could see be if both. anybody's woken yeah. up. I also kind of lean towards the sheath. Like maybe they thought that uh, they dropped it on their way back to their car. Maybe they wanted to kind of like look and see. Mm -hmm. uh, I do think that whoever did it, uh, if it's him or not, knowing like getting back to where you're supposed to go, it's kind of like that. fills me with joy. Mm -hmm. Like imagining this person freaking out, freaking the fuck out. Realizing that you did everything right, essentially, which sounds which sounds fucked up, because this probably would be a perfect crime without the knife sheath. They had yeah. nothing that would have besides the car, and even then, car is circumstantial evidence. Yeah, you could get rid of that. Car. They would have had sell it. You absolutely could ditch it, nothing. Report it stolen. Yeah, and his phone records would be circumstantial. I lived twenty minutes away. I did my grocery shopping there. I drove there all the time. I had friends. Which I there. think is actually what. What's that? Well, he said he liked the grocery stores better in mm -hmm. Moscow. He also, the days following, did his grocery shopping with rubber gloves on. But, you know. Mm -hmm. I mean, COVID. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, but I do, it does kind of fill me with, like, joy imagining whoever it was, like, realizing that the sheath was left. And they're like, oh, fuck. Yeah. Because it would be the perfect crime. They would have nothing tying this person. Besides the latent shoe print that could also be anyone's shoe. Crazy. Crazy, yeah. crazy. The one thing that I I wonder like how you feel about this too, there had to be so much blood. Right? Oh yeah. So my thing is how are there not more shoe prints? Like even bloody shoe prints like leaving the house. Well do we know that there's only we one? We do. The only one that they pulled was a latent shoe print of a van's shoe that was like in front of DM's bedroom door or like near her bedroom door. Um and they pulled it by using like what is that stuff the blood stuff oh um the phosphorescent like I yeah, whatever I it is yeah but, they use like this... no. no whatever they use something like that um to pull it so they found a latent shoe print but they found like they didn't find like blood trails like outside to a car like i would think that you would be... maybe there wasn't though i don't know i guess like, we'll find out later blood. i don't know um, if you want to know what they did pull from his house and everything, you can find that too. They pulled like clothes, masks, guns, uh, a hotel key card and like stay information. Um, 
the clothes that kind of fit the description of what DM said that the person that she saw was wearing, Walmart receipts, all kinds of stuff, hair, dog hair. You um, doesn't have a dog? No. Oh. Well. So they pulled a bunch of stuff. We'll see. I am eager for And I would imagine they could start. probably match that hair DNA-wise to her dog. Murphy. Yeah, yeah, they could. Absolutely. All right. Well, that's a lot to digest. This is a long episode. Uh, it worked out much better this time. Yeah. I don't have to go back and edit out any mistakes. We probably could have salvaged what we had left from yesterday, but I didn't want to... We couldn't try to go back and poofed into the ether. I wanted it to be a good episode. Yeah. Do so. the victim's justice. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for listening to the monsters and mixers podcast. Please follow us on our socials. We are going to start being more active on those. Also, um, we are on Facebook at monsters and mixers pod on Twitter at monsters mixers and on Instagram at monsters and mixers podcast. Uh, like, and follow us on your preferred listening platform. Leave a five-star rating and send us those stories via email at monstersandmixers2 at gmail.com or at one of the socials mentioned. See you next time when we dive into another terrifying tale and concoct a new delicious drink to wash down the horror. We're doing that next time. (laughs) Now get out there and meet some ghosts. And make some toasts.